When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about the Republican campaign to block Syrian and Iraqi refugees from entering the country. Also, the latest in the long battle for the right to vote in America, Ari Berman has that story. And on a big football weekend in America, Dave Zirin, sports editor for The Nation, asks the question, why does anyone play football anymore? We're still thinking about Bernie Sanders as a socialist. Last week, he gave a big speech on what he means by socialism. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He's an award-winning historian who's written many books. My favorites are The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, and Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. He teaches at Columbia. He's also on the editorial board of The Nation. We reach him today at home in Manhattan. Eric Foner, welcome. Uh, Nice to talk to you, John. Well, after the first Democratic debate where Bernie Sanders held up Denmark as an example of democratic socialism, you wrote an open letter to him in The Nation. What was your advice to him? Well, uh, I have nothing against Denmark, particularly. It's a pleasant place. But um, I thought that um, I thought that Bernie missed an opportunity to sort of drive home the point that socialism is an indigenous American idea. It has a long history here. It is not just something that exists in foreign countries. Many people claim that socialism is a foreign import into the United States, subversive, un-American. And uh, while I don't, you know, object to talking about any other place, and we can learn from them, I thought he missed the opportunity to talk about people he knows perfectly well about, Eugene V. Debs, uh, Norman Thomas, democratic socialist in the 20th century, and then actually to identify himself with and educate the public about a much broader and deeper um, tradition of radicalism in this country, going back to Tom Paine and the American Revolution, going back to abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, feminists like Susan B. Anthony, the labor movement. Um, There is a very vital radical tradition in our country, and um, Bernie is part of it, or should be part of it. And I just felt that uh, invoking Denmark didn't quite do the trick. Well, in the speech that he uh, gave on his relationship to socialism, it seemed like he was taking your advice, or at least some of it. He he, uh, focused on FDR and argued that 
his programs from the 1930s sort of define socialism in America. He reminded us the New Deal brought Social Security, the minimum wage, unemployment insurance, the abolition of child labor, the 40-hour week, it's a nice long list, collective bargaining, strong banking regulations, jobs programs that put millions of people to work. FDR did all these things, Bernie says, and they were all called socialist. My question for you is, did FDR consider himself to be a socialist? FDR did not consider himself a socialist and never called himself a socialist. I did approve uh, and like Bernie's uh, strong emphasis on the uh, so-called second Bill of Rights or the economic Bill of Rights, which FDR laid out in 1944 during his fourth run for the presidency there uh, for re-election, which went further even than traditional liberalism. It included, you know, a guarantee of employment for everybody who wanted a job. I think here's the point. Socialism has long been part of, or was really until the Cold War, part of the political discourse in the United States. FDR was not a socialist, but FDR was influenced by socialism, and there was, there were many liberals like FDR, New Deal liberals, who were in communication with socialists. Socialists were sort of like the very left wing of the New Deal in a certain respect, and therefore they were part of the political dialogue, and even though they wanted to go further in limiting the power of the big corporations and things like that, uh, than FDR did, uh, still, uh, FDR's program was influenced by socialists, and that is a legitimate point. But I would still like to see Bernie go back further to, let us say, Debs and the Socialist Party before uh, World War One, which uh, had a, an even broader um, broader program to try to bring genuine economic equality to the country. Bernie is, as you all know, as you well know, you know, he's got one big issue, which is economic inequality. And that is the right issue. <laughs> that, that's the issue facing the country more than any other one. And um, socialists were in the lead in highlighting that issue in the early 20th century and trying to develop ways of addressing it. I have a question about the sort of political trajectory of Bernie. He used to wrap himself in the mantle of Debs, talk about Debs a lot. Now, in these latest speeches, he doesn't even mention Debs. It's all FDR. Do you think uh, Bernie has changed? Bernie has evolved? Or is this some sort of political calculation? Do you have any uh, ideas about this? Well, I'm sure that Bernie has uh, figured out that a lot more people have heard of FDR than of Debs. In other words, if you identify yourself with FDR among Democrats, you are seizing the high political ground. Yeah. You can't lose among Democrats by identifying yourself with <laughs> FDR. Sad to say, rather few people nowadays have heard of Debs. It is true. Bernie used to talk a lot about Debs, and indeed, um, it, didn't he make some kind of TV documentary, yes. or film documentary about yes, Debs? Yes, he did. Which he himself was sort of playing Debs and reading Debs' speeches. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, uh, if if he started talking a lot about Debs, he'd have to then spend a lot of time explaining exactly who Debs was. Now, to my mind, Debs is a great heroic figure in our history. He was beloved far outside socialist, far beyond socialist ranks in the early 20th century. Um, he was a great labor leader, the American Railroad Union. He was 
a great anti-war spokesman. He was put in jail and, you know, during World War One for opposing American participation in World War One. In fact, he ran for president several times. One time was in 1920 when he was in jail and he still ran for president. The New York Times report on this speech pointed out that a solid majority of Democrats in polls say they have a positive view of socialism. This is the New York Times poll released uh, this month. 56 percent of Democratic primary voters said they felt positive about socialism. Uh, Only 29 percent of Democrats said they took a negative view. This is not just college students. It's not just young people. It's all Democrats registered to vote. What do you make of this? What I make of it is that people are pretty fed up with the way our system is operating now, which is primarily in the interest of the top 1% or the top one-tenth of 1%, and they would like an alternative. Now, of course, those people probably have many different ideas about what socialism is or might be, which is fine. Socialism today, I think, operates as what the... Um, historian Franco Venturi, when he was talking about writing about the Enlightenment and the radical Enlightenment, he used a phrase that I like, a protest ideal. Mm-hmm. A protest ideal. It's a term which is used to attack the existing system, to point out its flaws. It is not a blueprint. Nobody, Bernie or anyone else today, has a real blueprint for a socialist society. There was a second poll that also uh, showed a majority of Democrats have a positive view of uh, socialism. That poll also asked whether people agreed with Gorbachev, who said, quote, Jesus was the first socialist. I wonder what your position is on this vital question. I am not in a position to... um expound on the philosophy of Jesus, I'm afraid. Uh, Jesus did, uh, I don't recall Jesus using the word socialist. Of course, that word did not exist at all in the language until I think the 1820s, when, or maybe a little, but when Robert Owen and the early communitarians began using it. I say if people want to find views in the teachings of Jesus, they should go right ahead and do it. Eric Foner, recently he wrote about Bernie Sanders and socialism for The Nation magazine. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Thanks a lot for talking to me, John. Now it's time to talk about This Week in Immigrant Bashing. Republicans have been campaigning by attacking refugees from Syria and Iraq. In the last week, we've seen the House voting to try to stop immigration from those countries. And that's only the beginning. For comment, we turn to Julianne Hing. She's covering the 2016 elections for the nation from the perspective of immigrant communities. She's also written about immigration, education, and police accountability for color lines. We reached her today in Brooklyn. Julianne Hing, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so I'm so glad to be here with you on your second episode. <laughs> well, first, remind us about the bill that the House passed last week. So this was a hastily put together bill uh, that cleared the House by a 152 vote margin. Uh, what it would more or less do is grind the refugee processing time to a to to, to a halt. Uh, currently, actually, uh, the average processing time for refugees from Syria is 
uh, averages about two years, a year and a half to two years. Um, and that would all but, th- this bill would all but stop that by uh, chiefly requiring that um, the FBI and the, dep- the chiefs of the FBI and Department of Homeland Security personally sign off on every refugee from Iraq and Syria um, and refugees who have even traveled through Iraq and Syria um, to, you know, to be, to be personally cleared by these chiefs before they're allowed into the United States. And, um, and this is on top of an already uh, extremely detailed, extremely thorough processing. Um, as it happens, refugees are the most thoroughly vetted people who enter the United States, more thoroughly vetted um, than, than tourists, than business people, than students, certainly. And so, and so the, these sorts of checks that are being added, first of all, it's, it's not quite clear that they would make the process that much safer. And second, what it would really do is halt the process and, and frankly, endanger the lives of people who are vulnerable um, and fleeing violence in their home countries. And, uh, Escape, trying to escape for their lives. We blame uh, the Republicans for for this attack on Syrian and Iraqi refugees, but didn't some Democrats join them in supporting this terrible bill in the House? Yeah, that's right. Just about just under four dozen Democrats, um, forty seven Democrats voted for this. What has Obama's response been to this bill in the in the House, and how's Obama been on refugees in general over the last year? President Obama has said that the kind of rhetoric that we're seeing from a member, Republican members of Congress, from Republican presidential candidates, is really feeding into um, basically ISIS propaganda. Um, it, it really feeds into this idea that that the West um, is 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 out to to get all those who um, profess to you know be members of. And Muslim faith in whatever capacity, right? And and so and so he has said he has really really urged compassion. He has he has said over the weekend actually, um, while in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, he visited a, a shelter where um, a shelter for child migrants and refugees, and and he had said that he vowed to uh, keep the doors open to refugees to the United States as so long as he was president. This bill targets refugees from Syria and Iraq, of course the terrorists in Paris were not from Syria and Iraq. They were not refugees. They were French and Belgian citizens. But the public doesn't seem to be aware of that. The public opinion uh, has not been good in America on this. There's a new Bloomberg politics poll that found 53% of all Americans do not want to accept any Syrian refugees at all. And then we have the governors. Remind us what the deal is with the governors in the last couple of days. More than half of the governors in the United States have said that they oppose the resettlement of Syrian refugees in their respective states. Aside from the concerning rhetoric and the political posturing, the interesting thing is that refugees are, by definition, um, once they're admitted to the United States, they're legal residents of the United States. And governors cannot dictate where people move um, within the United States. Let's just give credit to the governors who've said that they will welcome Syrian refugees. The governors of California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Delaware, Vermont, and my home state of Minnesota. 
Oh, and then there there was this proposal from Jeb Bush, uh, who in general opposes admitting refugees from Iraq and Syria, but he suggested we, sh- we could make an exception for Christian refugees. Now, this makes a lot of sense to me because, of course, Christians uh, do not kill innocent civilians in malls or movie theaters or classrooms in America. Uh, have I got that right? <laughs> you know, how, how exactly would someone carry out such a religious test? If we think about it practically, logistically, what, what would that even mean? It, it's, um, it's, it's mystifying. Last question. This horrible bill from the House, what, what do we know about its future? It has to go to the Senate. Do you know when that's going to happen or what might happen in the Senate? Yeah, there are two, two key things to keep in mind. So, you know, we're, we're on a Thanksgiving break. The Senate will come back in December. Um, but also, also what could be around the corner is a potential government showdown if, you know, if Republicans in the Senate decide to tie restrictions on um, Iraqi and Syrian refugees to um, a potential bill which, you know, could, could, could either avert or uh, lead to a government shutdown um, in Gosh, another ten days after after the Senate comes back, and so, you know, uh, Senate Democrats like Harry Reid have have real have have been projecting this air of confidence that they're going to um, handle this bill very quickly. Very quickly, it it will almost certainly be a very heated, very political, bitter fight um, with the lives of actual refugees caught in the middle. Julianne Hing. She's covering the 2016 elections for the nation from the perspective of immigrant communities. Thank you, Julianne. Thanks for having me. Thanksgiving weekend is a big football weekend in America. Every level a football team plays on Thanksgiving Day or Thanksgiving weekend from high school to the NFL. The NFL plays three games on Thanksgiving Day. Last year, 32 million people watched the Eagles-Cowboys Thanksgiving Day game on Fox. It was the most watched show of the fall TV season. And during Thanksgiving weekend last year, the top four most watched TV shows were all football games. Football has never been more popular in America, and for comment on this, we turn to Dave Zirin. He's sports editor of The Nation. He's the author of eight books on the politics of sports, most recently Brazil's Dance with the Devil, the World Cup, the Olympics, and the Fight for Democracy. He also hosts his own weekly show on the Panoply podcast network, Edge of Sports Radio. Dave Zirin, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. We know for sure about the dangers of brain damage from playing football. So why does anyone play? You mentioned the ratings of the games. I mean, it's obviously a revered cultural institution, uh, something that young people, lots of older people, uh, swoon over when it's on television. And so there's a natural, I think, transference there where young people want to be the stars that they're cheering on TV and you know, there still is, I think, a lack of a serious discussion uh, about issues such as head injuries. It's getting more serious, but issues such as head injuries, which is the number one deterrent to playing this game, um, is the sort of thing that hopefully we're going to have more of a discussion on. Because Thanksgiving uh, might be football weekend, but when Christmas rolls around, that's going to be the concussion movie weekend. 
where the new film with Will Smith opens. And I think that's going to open up this debate on an even grander scale. Tell us more about this Will Smith film. Sure. Um, it's being done by the same director who did uh, Kill the Messenger, the film about Gary Webb and the crack cocaine connection starring Jeremy Renner. So it's somebody with, with some serious you know, investigative chops. Um, and the film itself is stars, obviously, Will Smith, who's a you know, big Hollywood star. He plays a real doctor named Bennett Omalu, the person who first discovered, if you will, what we now refer to as CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the idea that even the most basic collisions on a football field, you know, the sort of collisions that don't even merit a replay or even a second glance, uh, that these are the collisions when built up over time in the hundreds that actually create a situation of permanent brain damage. You know, I've asked, I have a lot of friends who watch football uh, every week and especially on Thanksgiving weekend. And I ask them, why do you want to watch men receiving hits that cause these concussions, that bring early dementia, that shorten the lives of these players? It seems like they, they try not to think about it. Is that your impression? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, but it's interesting that it's harder and harder to do that because like 10 years ago, there would be a big collision on the field and, you know, the, the announcers would say, ooh, how about that, and things of that nature. And and now when it happens, it's much more of like this hushed silence, uh, not even by, not even just by the announcers, but you even in the fans as well. So you can feel this sort of new consciousness seeping into the sport. And the real question is, what's going to be the long long-term effect? And, of course, we are told that the new helmets – advances in helmet technology will make football safe or at least safer, especially for young high school and college players. What, what can you tell us about that? I mean, I would just say, don't believe it. I mean, if there's one thing that we've seen throughout the decades is that the safer they make the helmets, conversely, the more dangerous uh, the sport becomes because people are more likely to actually lead with their helmet when they tackle if they feel invulnerable, it creates a very false sense of invulnerability. And because these big helmets also, they also protect the face and the ears. So you tend not to see the kind of um, cuts and cauliflowering of the ears that in the past would be an indication to a coach or a trainer to take you out of the game. I mean, those big safe helmets, one of the things they do is they localize all of the impact and trauma to what's happening inside the skull. So, in some respects, the game would actually be safer if people went back to leather helmets or no helmets at all, for that matter. Wow. I understand that fewer and fewer parents are willing to let their sons play football. What do you think is the future of football? This is the big existential fear of the National Football League, that the sport will still have a lot of eyeballs on it, but the pool of talent is going to get more and more shallow as more and more parents try to get their kids to do other things, especially what we know about brain development in the, in the, before even pubescence, you know, where you still have tackle football leagues at seven, eight, nine years old. I mean, these little hits that look so cute, the kids are still in a lot of pain and in their brains, it's just not something that they're able to express. I mean, it really is frightening when you look at the research. Um, as far as parents, I mean, a lot of people are talking about these comments by LeBron James 
uh, who was asked why his kids didn't play football since he did play football. And he basically said, well, I was poor and they're not. And I think that also speaks to the existential fear of the National Football League, this idea that it'll be um, exclusively poor kids who end up on the field on Sunday being watched exclusively by white people with all the racial stratifications as well. The philosophy of football is is still much revered uh, in a lot of America. We're told that football is like life. It requires perseverance, self-denial, hard work, sacrifice, dedication, and respect for authority. I'm sure you know where that quote comes from, Vince Lombardi. How, how potent do you think that kind of philosophy of football is uh, today, especially among younger men? Well, I mean, I think it's still extremely powerful. And, and I mean, I think it's changed, of course, over time. Like the the general philosophies of football 100 years ago had to do with uh, it being an elite sport, a sport played at the Ivy Leagues, and the sort of thing that would toughen up uh, people who had become, in the eyes of their robber baron fathers, soft. Mm-hmm. So this will toughen up that new generation to lead America into a new century. At different times, we've, we've heard other arguments for football, but what it all comes down to is something that I think is very American, which is why the sport isn't going anywhere, and that's the redemptive power of violence. Like this idea that if you're soft, it'll make you a real man. If you're uh, somebody who looks like they're on the road to prison, it'll put you on the right track. So everything, if you're doing badly in school, we can't cut football because the only reason why these kids study is because they want to play. I mean, these are things that have reached the level of cliche that we hear time and again. And it all comes down to this idea that there is no problem that can't be solved by hitting somebody as hard as humanly possible. And if you ascribe to that belief, then football will always have an appeal. And it has an appeal in a way that war does not. Because with war, there are very real repercussions. I mean, you saw all the the macho blowhards around uh, George W. Bush's invasion into Iraq now sound pretty silly when they try to talk about how amazing that experience was and and but but with football it's like it's almost like you get to be you get to have a consequence free embrace of violence although as we're learning the consequences of play are all too real of course the dream of uh, many young uh, players is to make it uh, into the NFL to get the big bucks of being a professional athlete uh, I saw an interesting poll on whether college athletes should be paid, since, of course, they make so many millions of dollars for their schools. White people who said, yes, college athletes should be paid, 24%, 73% of white people oppose paying college athletes. Black people, 51% say college athletes should be paid and only 46% oppose. I wonder if you have any comment on that. Well, sure. It's, I mean, it's because um, the college sports, particularly the revenue-producing sports of football and basketball, when you strip away all the niceties, I mean, they really are the organized theft of black wealth. I mean, these sports would not exist in their current form without young black labor. And so it's their communities that are being robbed because they're producing untold billions, not just millions, but billions through the television deals for this product that's on television. And, you know, it says something pretty damning about this country that um, our other big sports, hockey, Major League Baseball, 
sports that have a much higher percentage of white athletes um, also have real minor league systems. And yet it's really only the sports that are the revenue-producing college sports that harvest the abilities of people who are in our society, in our democracy, the most disempowered with the least collective voice. Dave Zirin, he's sports editor at The Nation. Thank you, Dave. Thank you so much, John. The 2016 election is a year away, and the news is focused on the candidates, but there's a deeper issue. Who will get to vote in the 2016 election? Republicans have been working for years to reduce the number of Democratic voters who tend to be people of color, poor people, younger people, by restricting the right to vote. For that story, we turn to Ari Berman. He writes about American politics and civil rights for The New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, many other publications. He's a frequent guest and commentator on MSNBC and NPR. He's also a senior contributing writer for The Nation magazine and an an investigative journalism fellow at the Nation Institute. His new book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari Berman, welcome. Hey, John, good to talk to you. I just want to review kind of the latest developments in this battle over who will get to vote. Democrats are continuing to work on increasing the number of voters, expanding the electorate. Republicans work on restricting uh, voting. California uh, recently took a major step to make it easier to register to vote. A few weeks ago, California passed a law that makes voter registration automatic when you get a driver's license. Meanwhile, the Republican states are going in the opposite direction. Tell us uh, what's been happening in Alabama. Alabama passed a strict voter ID law, and then they just closed 31 DMV offices in the state. So whereas in California, you're automatically being registered to vote at the DMV, in Alabama, there, there weren't even going to be any DMV offices uh, in 31 counties, particularly in majority black counties across the state. The state has now backtracked a little bit. They said they're going to keep these 31 offices open one day a okay. month. Well, let's be clear about this. How many black people in Alabama do we think do not have the state-issued photo ID, which is now required of all voters? Well, what we know is that 250,000 registered voters in Alabama don't have a government-issued ID. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 really is the turning point for 20th century uh, uh, voting. Why is the Voting Rights Act of 1965 Uh, so important. What did it do? Uh, How did it work? Well, it was so important because it ended the widespread disenfranchisement of African Americans and many other people in the segregated South and and really all across the country before 1965. You had a situation where uh, only 2% of African Americans could register to vote in Selma, Alabama before the Voting Rights Act was passed, and only 6.7% were registered in Mississippi, and and you also had uh, poor whites who were disenfranchised, uh, other minority groups, Asian Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, other Native populations who couldn't vote as well. And so the Voting Rights Act enfranchised millions of new voters, and it did so by overturning things like literacy tests and poll taxes that had prevented people from registering for such a long time. It sent federal officials down to the South 
uh, to register uh, black voters. It kept federal officials there to make sure the elections were not stolen. It said that those states with the longest histories of voting discrimination, particularly in the southern states, that they had to approve their voting changes with the federal government to make sure they didn't discriminate in the future. And it also created a mechanism for striking down discriminatory election systems all across the country. So it was a law that was not just important in 1965, but has been critically important in the decades after as well. It was President Lyndon Johnson who signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, how important was popular protest and grassroots organizing in, in winning this law that brought millions of uh, more poor and black people into the electorate? Well, I mean, grassroots mobilization was the key. Uh, to passing this law because it was because of the uh, brutal beatings of unarmed protesters in Selma, Alabama, that there was a Voting Rights Act. We may have gotten one eventually uh, down the road, but the fact uh, of Bloody Sunday in Selma meant that the VRA had to pass quickly uh, and it had to be as strong and effective as possible. So there wouldn't be uh, more voting discrimination, there wouldn't be more brutality and more killing uh, just as people were trying to get the right to vote. So I mean, what Without the civil rights movement, without the protests, without um, African Americans, whites, and, and others demonstrating, there never would have been a Voting Rights Act. One of the biggest surprises to me in your book, Give Us the Ballot, is the Republicans' relationship to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I always assumed the Republicans had always been against this and always were against this, <laughs> but it turns out for more than 30 years, Republicans in Congress and Republicans in the White House supported extending the Voting Rights Act. Ronald Reagan signed bills reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act. George W. Bush signed a bill reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act. Why did Reagan and Bush and Republicans in Congress support the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act? Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think a lot of people don't realize that parts of the Voting Rights Act were temporary and had to be renewed by the Congress, and they were renewed on four different occasions. And each time the Voting Rights Act was renewed, it was signed by a Republican president with overwhelming support from Republicans in Congress. So uh, this was something that always had very strong bipartisan support. Now, there was always big debates among Republicans in the Congress and in the presidency about the Voting Rights Act. You had elements in the Republican Party that very much wanted to do away with the Voting Rights Act. And that included presidents uh, Reagan and Nixon and, and George W. Bush, who you mentioned. But there was always a very strong consensus among Republicans in Congress for this. And I think uh, there were a lot of Republicans in Congress that believed in the Voting Rights Act because they helped pass it. The Voting Rights Act passed in 1965 with bipartisan support. And so Republicans could point to the Voting Rights Act as something that they were doing to try to remain to, to whatever extent possible possible, the party of Lincoln. And every time there were people that then tried to come around and gut the Voting Rights Act, they, they lost that battle uh, because there were enough Republicans on board joining with Democrats to support the Voting Rights Act. And, and so I think that that's a critically a lost part of the history here, that there were these big struggles, but forces within the Republican Party that supported voting rights won for many years. Now, unfortunately, the momentum has shifted. Those Republicans who are opposing voting rights, they are the loudest and most influential and most dominant figures in the Republican Party. And that brings us to the famous and terrible Supreme Court decision in 2013, 
It was called Shelby County versus Holder by a vote of five to four. The Supreme Court majority struck down the crucial part of the Voting Rights Act that provided for federal oversight of changes in state laws governing voter registration. Uh, What was the reason the conservative majority gave for striking down the crucial part of the Voting Rights Act? Well, what John Roberts wrote in his majority opinion was that uh, history had changed since 1965, but the Voting Rights Act had not or had not changed sufficiently, that there was uh, an African-American president, that there were black mayors in places like Selma, Alabama, and therefore uh, you did not need to require those states with the longest histories of voting discrimination to have to approve their voting changes with the federal government. Roberts didn't strike down that requirement. He struck down the formula under uh, which states were covered and in kind of an evil genius move, kicked it back to Congress and said, well, okay, well, you, you draw a new formula um, knowing full well that you know, this particular Congress uh, can barely name a post office uh, and certainly was not going to restore the Voting Rights Act anytime soon. John Roberts, Chief Justice, who wrote the majority opinion striking down that key provision of the Voting Rights Act, How long has John Roberts been a a critic or an opponent of the Voting Rights Act? Well, John Roberts has been an opponent of the Voting Rights Act for over 30 years. And I think it's really important for people to understand that the gutting of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 didn't come out of nowhere, that this has been a concerted effort among people like John Roberts for many, many years. Roberts worked in the Reagan Justice Department, and one of his main portfolios was voting rights. And Roberts was locked in a big fight with the Congress over whether to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. And Roberts wrote memo after memo after memo, basically arguing that a strong interpretation of the Voting Rights Act would lead to things like quotas in electoral politics, uh, affirmative action in the electoral sphere. And Roberts wrote very bluntly that he believed that violations of the Voting Rights Act should not be made too easy to prove. And that was a battle that Roberts lost in the 1980s. But what we see is that when Roberts uh, gets on the court, he makes a a very concerted effort to gut the Voting Rights Act and essentially uh, tries to accomplish on the court what he was unable to accomplish as a young lawyer in the Reagan Justice Department. 2014 uh, was the first election since 1965 without the protections of the Voting Rights Act. That affected voters in at least 14 states, which had previously been under uh, federal scrutiny. Remind us what the Republican-controlled legislatures did uh, in those states as soon as they were freed by the Supreme Court from the scrutiny. So you had, for example... Laws that were previously blocked as discriminatory under the Voting Rights Act, like Texas voter ID law, were allowed to go into effect. Then states passed more sweeping voting restrictions. So North Carolina, for example, essentially gutted or curtailed uh, every voting reform in that state. Uh, they uh, cut early voting. They, they eliminated same-day voter registration. They eliminated the ability to vote anywhere in your county. Uh, they eliminated pre-registration for 16- and 17-year-olds, which was taught in high school civics classes. They eliminated public financing of judicial races. They even eliminated Citizens Awareness Month, uh, which the state ran to encourage people to register. And all of this was done in one bill just a month after the Supreme Court's decision. So that was really a dramatic escalation of voter suppression efforts. One more thing, your title, Give Us the Ballot. Where does that come from? Who said it? Martin Luther King said it. It was the name of the first major speech that he gave on the topic of voting rights. 
and he gave it at the Lincoln Memorial in 1957 uh, at this uh, mass meeting called the Prayer Pilgrimage for Freedom. So this was two years after the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955. It was six years before the March on Washington in 1963, and what King was saying in his speech when he said, give us the ballot, was that the vote would be the key prize for the civil rights movement, uh, that it would give people finally the power to change their circumstances and to do something about the government that represented or in the case for many years did not represent them. And so uh, I thought that that speech was so powerful and, and really the refrain that King had of give us the ballot was still very relevant at a time that so many states were restricting voting rights today. The book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. The author is Ari Berman of The Nation magazine. Ari, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. That's it for today. Our thanks to Eric Foner. He talked about Bernie and socialism. We also spoke with Julianne Hing about the politics of immigration from Iraq and Syria. And Dave Zirin asked the question, why does anyone play football anymore? Start Making Sense, the nation's weekly podcast, is recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Oriano at Emerson College, Los Angeles, which offers a range of courses, nights and weekends, for working adults. From social media marketing to TV writing, from 3D animation to publishing, find out more at emerson.com. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. I'm your host and producer, John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.